The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning, good morning, good morning. There we go. Good morning, Refuge Church. Good morning. Good morning. That's, yeah, you really pumped that up. That was great. It just gave me a lot of authority in my voice. Hey, well, it's good to be here with you guys. I did not know this week if this would happen. Uh, we are awaiting the arrival of Evangeline Elizabeth Frederick any day. And so we have some hand signals. Uh, if, if Hannah puts five up, that means that contractions are five minutes apart. Which, which means that I can kind of, kind of, you know, work the sermon down, you know, touch on some more salient points. And no, she's not. No, that's the, that's the signal if that happens. That's a good question. Um, if 10 go up, that means water is broken, and that means all God's people said amen, and, and, uh, and we just leave right away. And so <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll do the rest of the sermon Facebook Live on the way to the... <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's really good to be here and preaching, but this also means we probably won't see you, hopefully we won't see you in a while, other than you bringing food, and we, we hope to see you, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, and cook, yeah, cookies, uh, that'd be great. So... Uh, let me pray for us to start. We are in our sermon series on Ephesians, Be Different, and uh, today is Be Powerful. And I want to pray for us, just lead us into a quick time of confession, uh, praying just that we will come to God, acknowledge the way he is powerful, the way we have not lived in his power, but chosen rather to live in our weakness. And so I just want to offer that prayer of confession and invite you guys to do that as well. Pray with me. Oh God, we know the story. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, that the earth was formless and void, and your spirit hovered over the waters, and what was not now was because of your power, your great strength and the story is told of how you made a people for yourself even after rebellion with incredible power you came humble power you came and then rose with power power over death power of forgiveness we confess with knowledge of that, how we have not lived in your power. The freedom your forgiveness offers us. God, we've chosen to live in our own shame. We've chosen to live in guilt. So I pray today, God, once again, that power will be made available to us and we'll say yes. We'll receive your grace and though we are weak, live in your strength. I just want to give you guys 
30 seconds or so to offer your own confessions before we start. God, you are holy, holy, holy. There's no one like you. Thank you for receiving our confessions today. And your love for us, we thank you for that. And give us the ability to hear your word and respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God is calling us to be a different kind of people, a holy people. Holiness is a quality that uniquely belongs to God. Being a different people means that our primary identity is part of God's holy family. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives instructions on how to live as holy people in a world that often doesn't like our kind of different. Now we have... For a couple Sundays, got to see this incredible vision that God has for his people unfold. And two weeks ago, I shared how Paul's two primary objectives is understanding our identity in Christ and the implications of that identity in Christ. And, and how, we just, how we live into being people in Christ. It's an incredibly positive book. <laughs> <laughs> two of people that, like you and I, are incredibly screwed up. <laughs> it's an incredibly encouraging book. And so Paul's just trying to lay out for us, man, how good God is, how good God is for us who don't always know how to receive that. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon today where, where Paul just gets in this incredible, like, prayer song kind of just expressing how amazing the riches of our inheritance is in Christ and all these things. I, I was doing some reading and I, I stumbled across a story that I thought was very appropriate. It was a story of William Randolph Hearst, who, who some of you know, this uh, media news tycoon at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Everybody knew him. He, readership of his papers was over 20 million at the time, just huge and uh, he started investing his great wealth into collecting art. And he would, he would kind of comb the earth for different pieces that were for sale, and he would purchase them. Now, he, he came across in his reading this one piece of art that he felt like he must have. And so he sent his agent around the globe trying to find and locate this piece of artwork. Now, after some time of doing this, the agent reached out to him and he said, I have found the piece of artwork. It was in your warehouse. If William Randolph Hearst had but read the collection, the catalog of collection he already had, he would know that he owned this great treasure. <laughs> and he had thought about, wanted, willed into being that he would be the owner of that. And then all of a sudden he realizes, man, all along I have owned it. And that is what it's like for us who every Sunday, every day we show up and read the word of God and we are, we are 
understanding, we're reading and, and receiving in some way who God is and who he is to us in Christ Jesus. But in, somewhere along the way, we forget it just as quickly as we receive it. Right? These incredible promises for us, we just lay aside and we wish then we had them. If, if, only, if only I could receive forgiveness for the things I feel guilt over. Oh, I'm just buried in my shame. If only I can have freedom from that. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that world be so nice? And here is God, infinite in mercy, generous with grace, wanting to give us that, and we're over here like moping. Oh, if I only could have that great treasure. And what Paul is saying here in these verses is, it's yours. <laughs> and so his prayer is that they would know what is theirs in Christ. Isn't that amazing story. So the big question of the day is, do you know Jesus? And our big idea is knowing Jesus means wanting him more and more. It means wanting him more and more. There's three things Paul talks about in this passage, and that is that you are, in Christ, called. You are, in Christ, amazingly rich, and you are, in Christ, incredibly powerful. There are three things, and you're like, he's probably not talking about me. Well, let's, let's just see, okay? Just trust me as we walk along. Because if you... Look at yourself, you're probably thinking maybe more along the lines of 1 Corinthians one twenty six, which we looked at two weeks ago, which Paul in another book says, remember, when you were called, you, many of you at least, were not wise by human standards, not influential, not of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And, and it's not a compliment, right? God chose the foolish, you and me, right? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, you and I, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. And so that those that come to him can't boast, we can't boast in ourselves. I'm so knowledgeable about myself. I can't boast in myself. I can boast in, in Jesus. I can boast in him who has made me called, who has called me, who has made me rich, and who has made me powerful in his name. And that is, that drops us here into Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Let's just, let this kind of speak over you, and Paul's prayer, let it be for you. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better and better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you were called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, the incomparably great power to us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let me just return to verse 18 really quick. Um, just to show you this 
trifecta. You are called, you are rich, you are powerful. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believed. You are called, you are rich, you are powerful. How is this possible? Well, Paul, knowing that the readers of this letter and you and I won't think it's possible, he just enters right in in praying that we will be able to understand and see it. He's like, God, give them eyes to see, give them a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation so that, and and this whole thing kind of is captured, so that they may know him better. If I was just going to do a a big, like, what is this whole section about? It's so that we may know him better. But you may not know him better if you just dig into books, if you just open your Bible and go into it. He's like, I know they will not know him, Jesus, better if they simply try to go back to their own foolish understanding. That's not the way to it. So I'm going to pray that. And he goes on, he says, so the eyes of their heart will be enlightened. Knowing Jesus is the goal of all of Paul's life. This is Paul's passion. This is Paul's motivation. One of my dad's favorite verses, I even have it tattooed on my arm, is Philippians 3.10, which Paul simply says, I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. So somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead, I want to know Jesus This is a man who wrote 13 of the books of the Bible and his one goal is what? To know Jesus. That literally, if you were like, Paul, what's your favorite song? You'd be like, Jesus loves me. Like he's the guy that just, it comes down to very basic things. I just want to know Jesus. I know some of him, but I know that when I start knowing God, I have begun a journey to know an infinite being and so maybe, maybe Paul's smarter than all of us put together, but he knows that he is only touched with his pinky finger, the knowledge of Jesus. So he's like, man, so will, will you give, Father, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know Jesus? Jesus makes everything about God personal. This is so beautiful. The Bible has taken us on this incredible tour of God's strength. From the creation of the world to the fire at Mount Horeb, we see God showing up in ways that seem fearful. But in Jesus, we finally shake God's hand. We look God in the eye. We are not only given the opportunity to know God personally, but we find that we are more personally known by God than we ever could imagine. God knows us intimately and he wants to unfold us into an ever closer relationship. It is a relationship that feels like it is always beginning because we are always starting to know more. (laughs) What we've known is always the beginning of what there is to be known about God. Knowing Jesus means wanting to know more about Jesus. That's the whole theme of everything Paul writes. (laughs) Knowing Jesus is wanting to know more about Jesus. That's why I get a kick out of it when I talk to people and they're like, oh, I read the Bible. Like, wow. Yeah, it's a start. (laughs) It's only the beginning 
that God would reveal himself to us more and more and more. This is more than book knowledge. This is more than study. When Paul prays, and it's a beautiful prayer, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. This is verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. This isn't the sense of enlightenment that we think about, which is just having some secret knowledge. In the Bible, when the heart is enlightened, the heart literally is the seat of every single part of the inner person. May you be completely, and he uses this language later, talking about the body, the, the, full, the body, which is the church, filled up to the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. That they would be enlightened in their heart means that from the top of your head to the bottom of your heart, which Malia likes praying, from the top of your head to the bottom of your heart, the, the, the toes, that, that all, every single part of you will be filled up with understanding of who God is and acting on that. That is what he means by enlightenment. The experience of fully knowing God. That's what he is praying for here. Knowing him personally, which is salvation. Knowing him increasingly, which is sanctification. And knowing him perfectly, which is glorification. One day, we will be glorified and we will know him perfectly as we are now perfectly known. Can't wait for that. (laughs) So, he prays for three things that the believer will know. Having an enlightened heart, and these three things are his calling, his riches, and his power. I feel like you just need a like, breather. Paul, this is the, some of the densest writing that you'll ever find here in Ephesians 1 and 2. And you, you have to constantly go back and be like, wow, these things are, it's a stream of conscience. So his calling, what does this mean? The hope of his calling, the biblical hope we are being introduced to here is not the kind of wishful thinking that we think of as hope today. It is not the, chance of rain, but I hope it will be clear out today. That is what we refer to as hope. Biblical hope is a rock-solid assurance. It is a guarantee of what is coming and what is before us because it has been promised by God. And we are assured of this in verse 14 where he says that he's given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those, until the redemption of those who are, are God's own possession. There is a deposit guaranteeing our hope. So what is our hope? It is bottled up in that word redemption that you see throughout this whole passage. The image of redemption that we are meant to understand even in that context and, and we know brutally from our own history in the United States of America is the idea of redemption is when a slave is being put up to be purchased and someone comes and purchases that slave, but the redemption is purchases them for their freedom. It's a powerful image because it's painful. And we can feel that in ourselves. We see it in our histories, knowing in, uh, you know, this, this longing man, this grief over what we have seen happen in our history. And, and, and now a joy we can share that, that those who once experienced such pain can experience freedom. And, and even now this rejoicing, let, let that be, let that be an ever increase. That's what we hear in the word redemption, that those who have been enslaved to sin those who have been 
uh, found themselves in a place that they cannot get out of, they cannot break free, that Jesus comes and liberates them for their freedom. That those who are in Christ are free. And we read this in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 8.23 says this in another way. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await the adoption to sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now the words he used here are vivid because he says the hope to which you were called, meaning he wants you to imagine yourself or know yourself having been a slave to sin, having Jesus call your name. Ben, Hannah, Daniel, Joe Berg, right? The, he's literally, Jesus is calling your name. The hope to which you were called, that the hope isn't that you were, you were waiting and the voice never came, but that Jesus has literally said your name. And your redemption is sure because Jesus knows your name and has spoken it. The one who is love calls you beloved. That is the hope to which we were called. Eugene Peterson writes this, and I love it. He says, Paul deliberately chooses words that identify us by what God does in and for us, not what we do for God. He re-identifies us as creatures of God, saved by Jesus, formed by the holiness of the Spirit. He is retraining our imagination. It's so beautiful. He's retraining our imagination to understand ourselves, not in terms of how we feel about ourselves, not in terms of how we treat others, but as God feels about us and treats us. Not as our parents or our teachers or our physicians or our employers or our children define us, but God. Not in terms derived from our employment or our education or our physical appearance or our achievements or failures, but God. He is the one that calls your name and he is the one that speaks hope over you, the redemption, the freedom, that is yours uniquely in Christ Jesus. Now this seems like it should be enough. <laughs> but Paul just keeps praying. Right? <laughs> You're like, man, the hope you were, I just want to sit with that. And maybe we should have broken this into more servants because I just, maybe we just need to sit in that going like, man, I'm free. I'm free. He's called my name. I've walked towards him. What are you free for? What are you free to? Well, your glorious inheritance. That's his second prayer. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. You are not just free, but you're adopted. Verse five, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Romans eight seventeen. now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8.31, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all? How will we not also along with him graciously be given all things? We have been adopted into the family of God. So, do you know what belongs to you as children of God? We just walk through it. Literally, in your adoption, being co-heirs with Christ, not sub-heirs, co-heirs with Christ, all things 
are yours in Christ Jesus. What belongs to God belongs to you. The future that is God's is your future. And how do we understand, how do we even grasp what this could look like? Well, we grasp what it can look like in the life of Jesus, who was a son, didn't need adoption. We have been adopted, now we're co-heirs with Christ, but Jesus who, from the beginning, <laughs> from beyond the beginning, was a son, lived with such confidence and serenity as we saw him walk in a world full of conflict. Man, does that word just define, that word just define our world right now, conflict. How did Jesus walk in the conflict that was the Roman Empire? Some puppet ruler always coming up, getting killed, another person, like what happened? Jesus walked with confidence because he knew whose he was. He knew his identity as a child of God. Eugene Peterson writes, uh, in our identity-confused society, too many of us have settled for an imitation identity composed of social security numbers, medical records, academic degrees, job history, whatever fragments of genealogy we can salvage from cemeteries. But Christians can do better. We are baptized. And I think this is, you know, if I say Christians can do better, honestly, we, we probably maybe scatter immediately to wrong ideas of how we can do better. We can't do better because we are better and can boast in ourselves. That's not true. We can do better because we are baptized, <laughs> because we have been redeemed. We've been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by virtue of that name, we are saints. We are children of God. That is what he's called you to. So, how, how do we have that as certain? Well, it is knowing this third thing he prays for, which is his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, I just want to give you permission. If you are stuck on something I've already said, just hold on to it and go to that happy place. Now, for you who want to just keep tracking oh man I, this is one of those when I, I was like I, honestly as a philosophy major I was just like running through like his arguments and I started with something incredibly dense and had to work my way back so it, it, he's writing this incredible kind of magnum opus right of, of like what it means to be a child of God here and it will take the Holy Spirit just thrilling your heart with this knowledge for us to even touch it. When we get to learn his incomparably great power, Paul kind of takes a new track. The last two things he pointed back to something he's already talked about. For knowing his incomparably great power, he gives us this gritty image, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't borrow from the language he's already used. He takes us to a place that is familiar for all those people reading, which is Jesus, who was brutally killed, was magnificently raised. What Paul has said so far can feel a bit philosophical, but this new image is concrete. He brings us to the crucifixion. What we see in Jesus' death all of us can relate with, but something new happens in the life of Christ. 
We think in our world, this is important, especially considering the conflict and what we see, we think in this world that power is the ability to take a life. Isn't that true? There is no power, though, like the power to give life. Eternal life-giving power belongs to God and God alone. I can, I can, we can see this in so many ways. I worked one summer doing uh, construction where we were building a house, and then the next summer I worked doing demolition. It was far easier to demolish a house, right? I mean, my child knows how to demolish things. He, you know, he does not yet know how to build things. It is easy to destroy. And yet that is how we find power. Weapons of mass destruction. Whoever has the biggest cache of them is who? The superpower. That's not true. The greatest power belongs to him and him alone who can give life. And not just life now, but eternal life. Who can defeat death, sin, the grave, and be raised to indestructible life. And that power alone belongs to God. And that is the power he points to. The incomparably great power for those who believe it is the same power. This is what he says. It is the same power as the mighty strength who exerted himself in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at the right hand of the heavenly realm, far above all rule, authority, dominion. All these superpowers of earth are nothing compared to Jesus who sits on the throne because he has the power of life. Wow, isn't that amazing? Wow, don't, don't get stuck in thinking power is the ability to take life. It's not true. Power is the ability to give life, and that is the exerting of God's mighty power in raising Jesus from the dead, and then giving us that life also. And he kind of works his way back, being adopted into his families, being co-heirs with Christ, so that we would he- you know, we hear his voice calling us, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're beloved. That's power. What would it look like if the church of Jesus Christ saw life as power? Not the ability to win an argument, not the ability to be more, you know, take, work with the the tools of the world, but work with the tools God has. Redemption, salvation, forgiveness. Now, I'm going to throw kind of a wrench in this because Paul takes this in a direction that is hard. Where he reveals to us that when he says you, he's actually not just talking about you as an individual. Now that would feel real nice, wouldn't it? But he reveals that when he says you, he is actually talking about the church of Jesus Christ. His body is the language he uses Language he uses in Ephesians 5.3 when it says we are members of his body. 1 Corinthians 12.27, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part of it. And he describes this body in pretty magnificent terms. Starting in verse 22, he says, and God placed all things under the feet of Jesus, appointing him head over everything for the church. And the church, the definition, God's definition of the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, I was just beginning to believe that I was called and I was powerful and rich, but the church? 
You cannot seriously mean the church because the church is screwed up. Those people? Now for myself, I can believe that, but not for those people. There's a letter I read from one pastor to another, and the pastor wrote this, the church is woefully sinful, distorted, and inadequate. In its seasons and centuries, it is often in bed with commerce, the military, political establishment, or just as bad, opportunistically, that's a big word, opportunistically, leeching superficial life out of them by reactionism. But it's still in the bowels of the church, the worshipers that God has chosen to work, live, and sometimes be crucified. It's the church that Jesus says he will build and that hell will not prevail against. You see, Jesus has way more to give than just to you. When Jesus is going to fill up with his fullness something, it's going to be a people. It's going to be a called people, a people called by his name who, rich and powerful, not in the way the world sees the rich and powerful, but rich in life. Redeemed, free, saved, forgiven to be rich with life. An indestructible life. This is, this is Jesus' plan. This is Jesus' party, right? When he fills us up, he wants this to be full of what? Life. A life that weapons of mass destruction, insults, whatever might be thrown at him, cannot take away because the life is hidden in Christ. With a deposit guaranteed, which is the Holy Spirit. That's ours. And it's not just ours now, but it's ours for all eternity. I pray that the eyes of your heart and my heart uh, might be enlightened to see this. So, how do we respond to this? Well, we respond by praying for one another. Praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. I got this picture um, when I was studying for this and how to respond. And I, um, you know, so much comes back to, to our relationship, my wife and I relationship with Elliot and how he's learning. And, um, you know, Elliot knows we say, show me your muscles. And Elliot shows us his muscles. And so, um, you know, so then when we both have our shirts off, he wants to compare. <laughs> I'm obviously stronger than he is. And, but it, I get this like idea of this, this child trying to see their muscles, right? And we, we do that growing up, look in a mirror or whatever. But instead of that mirror being the mirror of comparison that the world has, this death that is offered to us on a daily basis by advertising, this death that's offered to us by all the, all the bells and whistles and trinkets that make us think that we are just, and understand that we are just decaying people. But what if the mirror was the word of God? What if the mirror was this? What if the mirror that we are looking at is what God is telling us? What if our mirror was, to borrow the words of Paul, what if the mirror was the hope that you have been called the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people? What if the mirror was his incomparably great power 
for those of us who believed? What if that was the mirror we looked at? And so the mirror was hope. The mirror was understanding our adoption. When I see myself, I see myself as an adopted child of God. That's what I see. That's the mirror the word of God is telling me. What if I see that this is just a life, life, everlasting life? And what if the world started seeing that because that's what I was seeing? How powerful would that be? That's what I want you to do this week. Make it your goal to know him more. Know that more. Know his promises more. And I offer for you as a means of practice what has been known in the church as a a breath prayer where you kind of breathe in and out. And there's this, I think it can beautifully be used in Philippians 3.10 where you can breathe in, I want to know Christ. And you breathe out and the power of his resurrection. Those words aren't magical, but that truth is transformational. Get that? Words aren't magical, but the truth is transformational. If you believe those words and live by them, you will be transformed people. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Speak that, hear that, believe that. And we'll be people that the world sees using the adoption we have, the power we have in Jesus, not to bring death, but to bring life, not to bring hate, but to bring love, not to bring condemnation, but to bring the invitation that others can also know the life that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, As we move into time of more worship, we're going to take communion together, and I invite you, while you take communion, um, if you have something to confess to God, do that. If you also would just like to start praying, While you hold the elements that remind us of the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us, that you can pray. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10. At the same time, if you want prayer, Ibrahim will be over there on the side to pray for you. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we... We are just held by you, those who have come to know you put our faith in you, to know shyly, embarrassingly, honestly, humblingly that we can't boast in ourselves, but that because of your love and goodness that we can be adopted into your family. Pray that that will be just enjoyed. Receive them enjoyed by this church. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.